So I have good news and bad news. If you're like me, when people say, do you want the good news first or the bad news? I change my mind sometimes, but generally I want the bad news first because I want it to end on the good news. Uh, today we actually have to start with the good news and end on the bad news because we're looking at a text of scripture and that's how the narrative lays it out. And so we're going to look at good news and then bad news in the book of Acts. But we'll even be able to see that the bad news can actually be used for good so we can all end smiling. That's kind of what we're going to do. So if you have a Bible, you can find the New Testament book of Acts. It's right after the four gospel accounts. And we're going to be looking at part of chapter 4 and part of chapter 5. They really belong together, as you will see in just a little bit. If you're looking for a sermon title, it'll be Good and Bad in the Church. Good and Bad in the Church. As an aside, you might be encouraged to know that I think I'm growing spiritually, or at least I'm becoming more diplomatic, because I looked at my old notes, maybe from 15 years ago, and the sermon title was, When God Kills. So, uh, I kind of like the old Pat, and I kind of like the uh, edgy nature of it, because we are going to see God killing um, church members, <laughs> of all things, in the passage uh, but we're not only looking at that, we're looking at good and bad things that happen in the church, blessing and, I won't call it cursing, but that's kind of what we're up to. Now, the book of Acts is volume two, remember, of a two-volume set written by Luke, who would have been a first-century medical doctor. According to Luke chapter one, he's writing to someone named Most Excellent Theophilus, and someone who's dignified, maybe appear to Dr. Luke, maybe someone he works for or with. But Theophilus, here's the important part, is a Christian who Luke is helping to give assurance to. Uh, he's functioning, Luke's functioning as an apologist to Theophilus. Man, these words with lots of syllables are hard to say. So an apologist is not one who apologizes, it's one who defends so the word means defend. He's, he's defending the legitimacy of the Christian faith to Theophilus. He's trying to help him be stronger in his faith, to not be weary, to not be wavering. He's trying to show him that it's historic to be a Christian because Jesus is historic. Jesus did miraculous things in real time and real space historically. Um, that Jesus spoke and interpreted the meaning of the miraculous things that he did. So Luke is, is arguing. Luke is being an apologist so that people like Theophilus and by extension people like us can say, being a Christian is not crazy. It's not unreasonable. It's not unrational. It's actually tied to reality. It's tied to real things, real Jesus, real time, real space. That's volume one, Luke. Luke's Gospel account, volume two, Acts, we call it, the Acts of the Apostles, because Luke is trying to show us that the apostles were legitimate, that they came after Jesus, but they weren't fake apostles saying they belonged to Jesus. No, they did the same kinds of things. They resemble him an awful lot. They're doing miraculous things in his name and because they're legitimate apostles and they're preaching the same message that Jesus preached essentially. And so it's good to listen to them. Now remember, and maybe, maybe you don't need to remember, maybe I need to tell some of you for the first time, uh, the, the label apostle existed before Acts. It existed even before Jesus apostles. Uh, an apostle is someone who represents someone else. An apostle is someone who maybe represents a king or a queen or a military official. And if you're an apostle, you represent them officially and you have their authority. So when the Bible says something like Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, or Peter, an apostle, or John, or an apostle, it's, they're unique. They're, they're, they're extraordinary. They are official representatives so they can officially say what happened and they can officially explain the meaning of what happened. So the acts of the apostles, they're legitimate apostles. So if we're Christians, we should pay attention to them. So it's a, it's a defense of the faith. One more thing and then we'll move on to the actual text, I promise. 
Part of Luke's apologetic, part of his defending the faith, is to not only record what we would call the good stuff, he's a legitimate historian also recording the bad stuff. Uh, if you were making this stuff up, if I were inventing a religion, I would only have Christians doing the right things. Especially early church Christians when they were right there close to Jesus. But they don't. And it actually speaks to the integrity of the Bible to record the good stuff and the bad stuff. So we don't need to be embarrassed. Well, maybe we do a little bit. You think, oh, what were they thinking? But he's recording what really happened. And it's good for us to know what really happened, even so that we can have all the more confidence in the legitimacy of the Christian faith. I hope you found Acts chapter 4 by now. We're not going to wait any longer. The good, the fruit, the positive, the highs of the lows first. How about chapter 4, verse 32? Now, the full number of those who believed, believed in Jesus, in His work, in His person, what He did. That's another way of saying Christians. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to Him was his own. But they had everything in common. So that right there is telling us something good. Those who had come to be believers in Jesus, those who had come to trust in Christ, it had such an effect on them. It had such a dramatic effect on them that they cared for other people in an extraordinary kind of way. So if somebody has a need... I'll do whatever it takes to do my part to help them have their need met. We might say this is the, I wanted to say natural response to being a Christian, but maybe we should call it the supernatural response. It, it's the right reflex. When this happens, this automatically happens. That's what I mean by reflex. These men and women and boys and girls had come to experience the love of God. They didn't deserve it, but God loved them. And gave his son. The son loved them and gave himself up for them. And the reflex, the supernatural response is, well, if God loved Pat, of all people, if I were in the first century, you know what? I can love other people. God didn't love me, love me because I'm lovely. He loved me. He showed his grace to me. He forgave me. He had his son live and die and be raised for me. Amazing. The reflex is now, I want to treat other people in a way I wouldn't have treated them otherwise because God has treated me in a special way. Uh, to borrow from an, another apostle, from John, First John chapter 4 teaches us that we love fellow Christians, we love other Christians, because why? Because He loved us first. It's the built-in supernatural reflex. And even though Luke doesn't use the word love, that's what's happening here to experience forgiveness and to experience reconciliation with God because of what He's done, not because of what we do in any way, shape, or form. It just causes us, to, uh, causes us to say, well, if God loved me like that, I can love other people in a way that I wouldn't otherwise. And that's definitely what's happening here in an extraordinary, remarkable way that the church is unified. When someone has a need, needs are being met. Christian love is in action. I would suggest to you that it doesn't always look this exact same way. And depending on your time, your place, your space, the circumstance, it looks different at different times, but it still happens even today. Christians, even beyond the book of Acts, are called to love one another, to sacrifice for one another, to be long-suffering and patient with one another. Well, that's the supernatural reflex of being a believer and we're seeing it here in the first century in a way that fits their time, place, space, circumstance. Special love comes among believers because they've been loved specially by God and I think we should say praise God for that. Verse 33 gives us more reason for praising God, more reason for rejoicing and it says in verse 33, and with great power... Read between the lines in light of the first four chapters. Great power by the Holy Spirit. It, Luke has been saying, controlled by the Spirit, filled by the Spirit. Same thing here. He's saying it in a different way. And with great power, Holy Spirit, no doubt controlled power. Oh, maybe also in light of verse 29, the believers have been praying 
So Holy Spirit power also answered a prayer power. The apostles were giving their testimony or testifying to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. And let's get real comfortable comfortable with verse 33 because there's a lot going on there that's actually worth our enjoyment. The apostles giving testimony, they're testifying. That's what you do when you're trying to prove legitimacy. If someone testifies in a court of law, they're trying to they're they're, they're saying this is what happened. Not something else, but this is what happened. So the, the apostles are testifying, giving testimony. It actually is a Greek word that comes into the English language as martyr. Uh, the apostles are martyring is really what it is, which sounds really strange. But when you stop and think about words and why they, uh, how they work, somebody who testifies, tells the truth about Jesus to the very end, sometimes faces great harshness, hardship. And if they're martyred, they lose their life for it because they're a faithful testifier. Well, they're not losing their life here, but I, th- I thought you might think that was interesting, so I told you. I paid a lot of money to study Greek. Uh, they're speaking what's true. They were eyewitnesses to the events. Oh, there were other eyewitnesses. The Bible talks about them. And the other ones are important, but the apostolic eyewitness is also important in a unique kind of way. So they're telling about what happened. And not only are they telling about what happened in testifying and martyring, they're also telling about the meaning of what happened because they're apostles, official representatives who know things truthfully and genuinely. So this is a good thing that's happening here. They're talking about the resurrection of Jesus. What happened regarding it? How he died? How he was raised? Because one assumes the other. And then not only that, what it means and why it's so important to believe that. It's really super good and interesting. But let me ask you this question. This is an important question. Who's the audience? The apostles are testifying of the resurrection of Jesus and it results in great grace. Oh, I want that. Who's the audience? Well, earlier we've seen apostolic preaching to unbelievers and many come to believe, but we've already seen in our passage, these are the ones who are believing. The audience here, fascinatingly enough, is a believing audience which is one of those things that in a certain sense makes you go, hmm, that's that's fascinating, that's noteworthy. I mean, we all understand why an unbeliever needs to hear the truth about Jesus because they need to come to believe in Jesus and be reconciled and forgiven and have the promise of eternal life. But here, test, testifying in front of believers, which may cause you to say, why would, why would he be doing that? After all... Don't we believe in Jesus and then move on and just follow timeless truths and principles and they lead to experiencing a lot of grace? Not so fast. But I think this is a corrective that we Bible believers maybe need sometimes and so I'm going to help out with it a little bit. They're testifying. They're, they're explaining the resurrection in detail and they're doing it to believers and it results in great grace happening, being experienced in the believing community, in the church, if you will. By way of application, just a pause moment here. I wonder how it is that we could experience more grace in the life of the church. I wonder why we don't experience more grace in the life of the church. I wonder why things aren't better where there's peace and harmony and unity and like-mindedness, you know, under the umbrella grace. Well, maybe it's because we think we checked the box of, oh, gospel, and now I'm just going to move on because I got Jesus, and now I'm going to move on to other things. That's not what they were doing here. The great grace experienced by Christians came because the Christians... We're hearing the apostles powerfully talk about the perfect work of Jesus. So that's worth us considering. Now, some of you have heard me say this more times than you can possibly imagine. But for those of you who are just joining us who have never thought about it, 
even consider elsewhere in the Bible. Romans is my favorite place to go because it makes so much sense to me, but Romans chapter 1, Paul writes to the what kind of people who were in Rome. Chapter 1, verse 5, some of you got it, he writes to the saints. He's writing to Christians. And then we go to chapter 1, verse 15, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you. But he's writing to Christians. I've told some of you the story before. I had a pastor call me, you know, on a Saturday night, which makes a pastor nervous when anybody calls him on a Saturday night, not to mention a pastor. If it would have been anyone else, I probably wouldn't have answered. But it's a pastor who's a friend. And I answered and he said, help me out. I'm preaching Romans 1 tomorrow. (laughs) Why would Paul want to preach the gospel to saints? And I was really glad that he called because I think I'd wondered for a long time too. And if we keep reading the book, the book ends... We go to chapter 16. The Apostle Paul talks about the believer's spiritual growth. He uses the word strengthened. And then he says in chapter 16, verse 25, according to my gospel. So we want to evangelize the lost so they can be saved. And we want to evangelize the found so they can be further sanctified. We don't move past Jesus. The apostles are testifying to the believers. Let's roll our sleeves up and let's dig in and talk about the great theology surrounding resurrection so that you can experience the grace of God in your midst where you're doing reflexive, gracious kinds of things like Christians are supposed to. Definitely going on here. Well, maybe... Maybe I'm getting so excited this is going to turn into a three-part series, but next week is Easter. Can't do that. Okay. (laughs) Ever so quickly, I want to give you a handful of great things about the resurrection, and I know next week is Easter. I will talk about the resurrection next week too, probably the next week too, but a handful of great things about the resurrection that would cause us to be encouraged and cause us to be so encouraged that we would be gracious to other people, even if they don't deserve us being gracious to them because nobody actually ever does. So if if you will, I have a handful of things here that they could have talked about as they were testifying. They could have talked about as they were testifying the fact that the resurrection encourages because the resurrection is the vindication of Jesus. Big word I know, vindication. If you say, I'm finally vindicated, I'm probably, I'm finally shown right. Maybe you were falsely accused and then eventually the truth came out and you said, oh, I'm so thankful to be vindicated. Well, Jesus made all of these huge claims. And guess what? When he's raised from the dead, they're all vindicated. He's not like every other religious leader who made great claims and died and stayed dead. And now we shouldn't believe what they said before they died. If they said they were going to be resurrected, Jesus said he's going to be resurrected. And he said a lot of other things and he's resurrected. Ah, this is great. This is wonderful. The vindication of Jesus is encouraging. It helps us in our being encouraged to be a Christian. Tell me more about the resurrection. Jesus is vindicated. Okay, what else is it? Well, also in this handful of encouraging things for Christian, well, the resurrection encouraging encourages believers because if he's resurrected based upon what he taught, it will also mean I'm going to be resurrected. John chapter 11, remember Jesus said, if you believe in me, though you die, you will what? You will live. And he's talking about resurrection. And so, oh, as the apostles are testifying, maybe that's one of the things they emphasized. Remember that Jesus ties his resurrection to your resurrection. Now, it's one thing if he said it's going to happen and he wasn't raised, he wasn't vindicated, then don't believe it. But he was. And we're here testifying to that great reality. Another thing on this handful of things they might have talked about as they testified about the resurrection, something that encourages us, is that means there's proof of forgiveness. Proof of forgiveness. I am a sinner. I have a lot of things to be forgiven of, from, for, whichever one you choose. Past, present, and future. How can I know for certain that I'm going to be forgiven? Well, Jesus claimed to have the power to forgive. 
Dr. Luke even recorded that. I think it was in Luke 5 off the top of my head. Don't, don't hold me to that. Yeah, but how do I know it's true? How, how do you know you can be forgiven of absolutely any and every sin you've ever committed? Well, because Jesus says so. And he was raised from the dead, vindicated. You can actually positively know so. The apostles could have emphasized that. It's no wonder it would lead to graciousness and grace in the church. I told you I had a handful. I better hurry up, but this next one's going to take me a few more sentences. The resurrection is going to encourage the believers because it's proof of their salvation rest. It is proof of their salvation rest. This is more important than it sounds. (laughs) You need salvation rest more than you realize. Let me put it another way. If you have salvation rest, all of your problems are ultimately solved. Tell me about how that relates to the resurrection. I will. Thank you for asking. If you have salvation rest, ultimately, every single problem, heartache, hardship, difficulty you've ever had in life will be solved. Remember when Jesus in Matthew 11 said, come to me, one of those great famous statements, come to me and I will give you rest. I like that verse a lot. I've I've liked that verse a lot for a long time. But he's not talking about when you're tired, generally speaking. There's a whole theology of rest in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Sabbath? Rest is what you get after you work. How could Jesus say, come to me and I will give you rest? Well, I know that it's true because he was raised from the dead, vindicated. But how how can he say that? Rest is what you do after you work. Go back to the garden in your mind or go back to Genesis. God does what before he rests? He works. He does things and then he rests. And then what's supposed to happen? Adam... And then Eve are supposed to do things, have dominion over and all that that entails. And then after you've done all the work I've called you to do, then you rest. It's an extraordinary kind of rest. But what do they do? Well, let me back up. I know it's an extraordinary kind of rest based upon Romans chapter 5. Their failure to do the work leads to their condemnation. But the last Adam, Jesus, does the work and it leads to justification. But let's think about what Adam did. Okay, we're doing the work. We're having dominion as God said. Uh, Serpent comes. Let's just use that as an example or we'll be here all day. Serpent comes. What should have Adam have done? Stomped on its head. Had dominion over. How dare you? But he doesn't. He bows down and he worships in effect. And it leads to condemnation. Hypothetically, if Adam and Eve would have done the right thing in having dominion as image bearers of God, it would have led to, we know from Romans 5, justification, salvation, rest, perfection, acceptance from God, Sabbath rest, salvation rest, ultimate rest where there are no problems. It's better, get this, it's better than pre-fall garden. It's post-work garden rest. That's even better. There are no problems. Everything is perfect, absolutely, positively, without any question. Everything is perfect. The way it was meant to be, if you will. Well, I'm going a long way around this. Maybe it's because of Theology for Breakfast this past week because we talked about Genesis and it's all on my mind. So welcome to Theology for Breakfast, Sunday morning style. Jesus, here's why I brought it up. Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. That's so much better than we might have otherwise imagined when we read it in light of all of Scripture. I will give you absolute, total rest fulfillment, peace, health, satisfaction, enjoyment, everything will be even better than a pre-fall world. 
How can we know that Jesus actually can offer such a thing? He was crucified, yes, but he was raised from the dead. He was vindicated. So I'm trying to help you all go, that's awesome and amazing. And if that's true for me, it puts all of my problems into perspective. And that kind of frees me up to maybe then, as if I've been loved like that by God through his son Jesus, the reflex comes and extraordinary things happen in the here and now even in the life of the church. I do have one more because I said I have a handful and then I promise I will go faster than is almost humanly possible. The encouragement that would have come by them testifying to the resurrection, they could have emphasized a lot of things. Perhaps they emphasized the fact that if he is raised from the dead, that means we have assurance that's irrevocable, that's absolute. If Jesus is your representative, you're trusting in him, he's been raised from the dead, you have nothing to fear when it comes to coming judgment day. There is a coming judgment day. But you ought not, need not, it's not Christian to say, oh, I hope my good outweighs my bad. If Jesus is raised from the dead and he's raised from the dead on your behalf because you're a believer, Paul says in Romans chapter 4, he's raised for our justification. He's looking, he's looking forward to that judgment day. That's justification talk. That's judgment talk. And he's looking forward to that day, but he's talking about now, if you believe, just know that Jesus was raised in time and space for your justification. Not condemnation. There's not going to be any condemnation. It's a guaranteed fact that you will be declared a lover of God and a lover of other human beings as appropriate because of what Jesus has already done. Assurance. Well, there's a lot of other places they could have gone, but I probably need to save some of them because next Sunday's Easter. So, there, there are so many things that are tied to the resurrection. There's so many things that it, if, if we, if, if we just did a better job maybe testifying, even though we're not eyewitnesses, preaching, let's say, and you say, if that's the case, what do I fear? If that's the case, I've been so blessed, it's amazing. You know what? Now I'm freed up to respond with gratitude unto God and I'm freed up to love other people even though they don't deserve it because I don't. You want to experience grace in the life of Omaha Bible Church? One thing we could do better always is talk about what Jesus has done to one another, believers. It results in great grace here, and I think it would continue to result in great grace. The biggest complainer I've ever met, I think in my life, other than myself, would also complain to me that because, the person would say, because I'm a Christian and I'm a mature Christian, I've been a Christian for a long, long time, I already know the gospel, I already understand all the stuff you talk about, can't we move on to more mature Christian things other than the work of Christ? Friends, it is a recipe for disaster in the life of the church for us to say we're going to move past Jesus so we can be mature. We've got to stay in this rut. We've got to learn from the apostles and realize they told Christians the gospel Oh yeah, there's all different dimensions. We just sampled the five, the handful. I mean, there's a, uh, we're not just talking about just repeat after me and the gospel until you can't think anymore and it's going to lead to grace. That's not the idea. Romans is all about the gospel and it goes all kinds of places. But it causes us to be impressed with the work of Jesus for us. It causes us to say that I, 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 God has loved me. I can love other people. I'll, I'll do whatever it takes. One of our biggest problems as the church at large is we assume the gospel and then we forget the gospel and before you know it, we deny the gospel and we can't figure out why we're all fighting. Let's move on. Verse 34. Here's what the love looked like. Verse 34. There was not a needy person among them. That's reminiscent of Deuteronomy 15 in in the old covenant kingdom. That's how it was supposed to be. 
For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. And in some ways I want to say that shouldn't be surprising. In that context, as needs occurred, the, the needs were met because they got the gospel, if you will, and they were continuing to got the gospel. And you say, well, if that's true for me, then if somebody has a need, I can help. It's a thing of beauty what's going on there. I would encourage you, just as a reminder, as, you're, as you are interpreting the Bible, I think what's recorded in the Bible is true and good, but do notice that that's what happened it wasn't a prescribed mandate. Okay? It's important that you know descriptive versus prescriptive. The apostle, the apostles didn't say, okay, everybody, everybody needs to put their house on the market and, uh, we're gonna have a commune here and, uh, that's how it's gonna go. But people literally have used this text to, to argue for a primitive form of communism. They didn't mandate it, it's just what people did as they saw fit. And, and we're gonna see later in the book of Acts, <gasps> People owned houses. <laughs> okay? I think it's in chapter 12. So don't, don't get it wrong. If you want to start a cult, then make descriptive prescriptive. It's not advisable. But this is what was happening. There were needs, and so people stepped up and met the needs. That, that's extraordinary. We should be impressed. But don't make it say something it's not saying. That's why I can say it can look different in different places, different spaces, different times, different needs. But the principle is the same. Impressed with Christ, willingness to do whatever it takes to love other believers. That's definitely what's going on in principle. Resurrection preaching leading to good. Okay, now for a standout example. You want to know a great example of this happening, Christian love, because of the gospel? 36 says, Thus Joseph who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. How about that? They nicknamed him. He he excelled, and we're going to see him later in the book of Acts, go with Paul on a missionary journey, be long-suffering toward Mark, even though Mark blew it, uh, showing kindness and welcoming those who are from a different area, part of the dispersion. This guy excels in, he's a model of Christian generosity and love and charity. And so the apostles give him a nickname, Barnabas. I hear this is better than a plaque. Can you imagine the apostles giving you a nickname? This guy is is to be admired. And we're going to see in the wrong hands, that's the problem. A Levite. Maybe that helps us even understand why he's so sympathetic because Levites actually depended upon tithes for their living. A native of Cyprus, he's an outsider. Maybe that made him more sympathetic. I don't know for sure. Sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So he's honored by the apostles. He excels at these things. He's to be admired. He gets five stars. What a guy Barnabas is. That's all the good. That's the positive. And we'll come back to him later on. But now we go to chapter 5. And every commentator I've ever read suggests that we should put chapter 5 with chapter 4 because it's hard to understand the Ananias and Sapphira bad if you don't understand the the, the contrast by way of Barnabas. So we're going to do that. I remind you that the chapter divisions came much later for our convenience So I can say chapter 4, chapter 5, and now we're going to have the bad, the lows, the kind of stuff I would leave out of the Bible if I were writing the Bible or inventing a religion. Chapter 5, verse 1, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. Notice it's it's Barnabas-like. That's what Barnabas did. Barnabas got a nickname. Barnabas got a special place of honor and privilege by none other than the apostles of Jesus. So Ananias and Sapphira, oh, that's, that's good. How about verse 2? And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. wonder what my nickname's going to be. I don't know, honey. I wonder what mine's going to be. 
We're going to go down in the annals of history as, as champions for good and generosity. Well, they go down in the annals of history. It's not very good. But Peter said, Ananias, why is Satan, Jesus said Satan is the father of lies, why has Satan filled your heart? To lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. I wonder how Peter knew. He's an apostle. No wonder people want to be apostles. But, but, but he knows something's up. Now, we're going to see in just a moment, the problem was not that they kept some back, actually. The problem we're going to see is they made it look like they didn't. They made a profession that didn't match what was real. As God's providence would have it, as we learn about Ananias and Sapphira, Psalm 36 for our scripture reading today earlier, he flatters himself in his own eyes and his iniquity, that his iniquity cannot be found out. Yeah, his iniquity is going to be found out and so is hers. This is fascinating. It's also fascinating to think uh, that they, it says he, you lied to the Holy Spirit. Well, if you're on the scene there, he didn't lie to the Holy Spirit, he lied to the church and he lied to Peter. It says something about even the role that they're playing as apostles, maybe even something about the significance and the officiality of the church. Then Peter says something important. Verse 4, While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? Implied answer is yes. You didn't have to sell your land. That wasn't the mandate. It's not prescriptive. It was descriptive. You didn't have to sell your land. It was yours. Everything would have been fine. Then let's keep reading. Similarly, and after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Implied answer is yes. You didn't have to sell the land. Then you sold the land. And if you would have wanted to keep every shekel, it would have been okay. Would have been fine. That, that's, that is what he's saying. It's not a mandate to give it all. The problem is not with that. The problem is they're being deceptive because they want to be glorified. They want to be honored. Verse 4 goes on to say, Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Once again, now Holy Spirit is God. That does affect your Trinitarian theology, which is important. It's not our emphasis today. So it was the Holy Spirit, now God, saying the same thing. But it's also interesting that they did, he didn't say it that way. In fact, when you just look at what's happening right there and right then, it's a lie to the apostles and to the church. Saying something about the apostles, saying something about the significance of the church and its authority. How about if we go on? If we go on, it says in verse 5, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. Not the miracle he was looking for. <laughs> Joshua chapter 7 talks about Achan. This is Achan-ish. Bad move. How about verse 5 where it goes on to say, and great fear came upon all who heard it. Can you imagine? you imagine the fear? Great fear who, by everybody who hears. Inside the church, people are afraid. Outside of the church, people are afraid. This is, this is, this is phobia inducing. We, 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 we have a new phobia like in our country every five milliseconds. Uh, I wonder what we should call this one. Pneumophobia, fear of the Holy Spirit. Ecclesiophobia, fear of the church. Petrophobia, fear of a bad Christian band. No, no. <laughs> Sorry. Petrophobia, fear of Peter. Apostolophobia. I thought that one sounded like fear of Italian food. Apostolophobia, fear of the apostles. I got your attention at least. They're afraid of church. They're afraid of the apostles. They're afraid of Jesus and his people. I mean, there's something to be afraid of here. Verse 6, the young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Verse 7, after an inter interval of about three hours, his wife came. Oh, wonder what the score would sound like. What's the soundtrack sound like? After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. And 
I guess in my, my sinfulness, in my bad attitudeness, you know, go get them kind of attitude, I might read this and think, huh, yeah, shows you. But maybe in a more sanctified moment, this is sad. This is heart-wrenching. They've been hearing about the resurrection of Jesus. They've been hearing about the wonders of, of God's grace and mercy and how grand Christ is. And, and, and they've been seeing other believers love one another. And now somehow it's, okay, I'm going to make it look like I'm doing that purely. And oh, need a little glory for me. I doubt Peter was gloating or happy or vengeful. How sad this is to see such bad things happening in the good church of Christ. Immediately, it says in verse 10, she fell down at his feet. Remember, that's where the money was laid. Chapter 4, verse 37. What an image. And breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Verse 11 says, And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Which is good. The bad is embarrassing. The bad is bad. Wish it wouldn't have happened, but there's something in me that makes me glad that it happened because at least we see that God isn't asleep and is paying attention and maybe it doesn't happen just like that now. Not that it couldn't happen. Isn't it interesting that these people were donors? (laughs) No wonder there's a fear happening, right? You go to that church and you might even sell property and give a lot of it to the church and then God kills you. This self-congratulatory, let me find some glory in it for me, leading to maybe just a little bit of deception, isn't a good look. Donald Gray Barnhouse, a famous preacher from a few generations ago. Some of you have heard of him. Even if you haven't, I'll bring you up to speed. He pastored 10th Presbyterian Church in downtown Philadelphia. Uh, later, James Montgomery Boyce was there. Later, Phil Riken was there. Good history. Uh, but Barnhouse, like every pastor, has his, oh, issues. Um, we have our isms. And here was, here was one of Barnhouse's isms. That song, At Calvary. Maybe you know, maybe you don't. Mercy, there was great and grace was free. Pardon, there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. That song. He would not allow the church to sing stanza three. Stanza three says, Now I have given to Jesus everything. Now I gladly own him as my king. So because the congregation would be singing that you've given Jesus everything, he said we can't do it because of Acts 5. Maybe he was a little overly literal. I don't know. There's, there's poetic license a little bit, perhaps. But I do like what he said about it. If God acted in the same way today that he did in the fifth chapter of Acts, you'd have to have a morgue in the basement of every church and a mortician on the pastoral staff. So sometimes even cantankerous is good or a little bit funny. Okay, lots of people want to know the answer to this question. Were Ananias and Sapphira Christians or not? I don't know. But but I will encourage you with the fact that to be a Christian, to become a Christian, you don't become a Christian by always telling the truth. That's anti-gospel. The way to become a Christian is to trust in Christ. And you might be thinking to yourself, yeah, but they lied. Have you met very many Christians? <laughs> God disciplines those he loves. If they're Christians, this is discipline. But regardless, it's meant to get our attention and to have us to see the greatness of Christ and the great reflex grace that should come in our midst that's unifying. But just because it's grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, doesn't mean he leaves you alone and you can sin it up. 
not a good look. And we're seeing both of those things happening here. God cares even about the purity of the church. Well, let's move on now. Verse 12. Now, many signs and wonders were... Let's read this carefully because there's a lot actually here that's important. Many signs and wonders, not just a few, were regularly... So this is a common occurrence. Not not a one-off once in a while. Regularly done among the people not in private or in isolation, among the people, by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico in a real place, a porch, a fancy porch with an overhang is the idea. And I think the reason that's important and I read it that way is because Luke's doing two things to cure you of bad charismaticism. Okay, Luke's doing two things. He's stressing the normalcy of the miracles. He's stressing that this happened many times. And notice what he says. Many signs and wonders. Notice regularly among the people. And it's in a real place in Solomon's portico. He's, He's authentically, really, truly, genuinely happening. So if somebody says to you, do you believe in miracles? I hope you say, absolutely, many of them happening regularly in real places, they were rather ordinary. There's one thing I missed though, right? Some of you are telling me, by the hands of the apostles. Yeah. Don't make the overcorrection and say, well, these, these weren't, this hardly ever happened. No, it happened all the time. By the apostles. But what they were doing isn't what you see the fakers on Fakerville television doing. Legitimate, in public, real places, verifiable because they're apostles. Part of being an apostle, you had to see the risen Christ. They're doing things similar to Jesus because it's authenticating their message. And so, really, this is a great go-to verse to help us to understand the apostles' work. Absolutely. I am all about apostolic miracles. Apostolic miracles. What they're doing doesn't look like what people do today. Maybe something else about that in a moment. Getting back to the great fear theme. Verse 13. None of the rest dared join them. But the people held them in high esteem. That's kind of interesting. You know, don't, this is a terrible plan for church marketing, right? Don't go to that church, you die, even if you're a big donor. Potentially. Okay. That's a, that's the closed-minded church where they take things really seriously. Really, really seriously. So don't go to that church. I've got some other recommendations, but don't go to that one. I do think it's interesting though that there is, how did he say it? Um, they held them in high esteem. I think that's interesting because there's at least a, you know what, they're serious. And you know what? We even heard there are liars that go there but it wasn't tolerated. It wasn't covered up. There's still, in a certain sense, an esteeming of what's happening there. Then it says in verse 14, which brings a smile to my face. I wish this were normative. I wish this were a promise and not a description. Uh, But notice what it does say. And more than ever, excuse me, and more than ever, yes, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women. And some translations put the emphasis in a little bit different place. Both are true theologically and the Lord added to their number because that is how it happens. So I love it, right? So things are going terribly in the newspapers or on the internet and yet the Lord adds to their number greatly like never before believing in Jesus because it's still the gospel. Power of God unto salvation. I love, 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 love that. I like to encourage my own heart and your hearts with with that reality. Let's do the right thing, no matter what. Maybe the Lord will bless us abundantly in this life. Maybe He won't. But He has on occasion, like here. I'm going to do the right thing no matter what. And the right thing is happening there, no matter what. 
because it's Christ's church. Okay, we better move on. Let's move on to verse 15. So that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. Which seems kind of strange, but if you look at the life and ministry of Jesus, if I could just touch his, t- touch his cloak. So there's actually a similarity here. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. That's another important one. They were all healed. So notice, all healed, it wasn't those who were giving the most money. It wasn't those who had enough faith. It wasn't those who were the extraordinary ones. No, they're all healed. So again, apostolic power, very different from what we see today. A friend of mine wrote this. I thought it was kind of interesting. Never trust a faith healer. Never trust a faith healer who gets sick. I should add also, even by the time the apostles' lives are over, they're not doing this. They actually don't even have the ability to when Timothy is sick. Paul prescribes medicine for Timothy. Never trust a faith healer who gets sick. Never trust a faith healer who wears glasses. Never trust a faith healer who asks for money. Never trust a faith healer who literally pulls your leg. Never trust a faith healer who hasn't raised the dead. Never trust a faith healer who is less than 150 years old. Never trust a faith healer who couldn't blow away COVID-19. Never trust a faith healer who never cleared out a cancer ward. Never trust a faith healer who claims to have the gift of healing. I don't know if you caught the last part or not. Great things happening in the life of the church. It's bold, let's call it gospel proclamation and testimony. That's the emphasis. And great things are happening. Bad things are happening. When bad things happen in the church... Let's not use it as an excuse, but let's know that bad things have been happening in the life of the church since the very beginning. And it doesn't, therefore, mean that the church is illegitimate. doesn't mean that. Let's not tolerate sin. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to make excuses. But as I've told a friend who had his heart broken because of a very unfaithful pastor... I had to say to him, just know this. Everything he told you about the gospel and Jesus is still true. And none of it gets past the Lord anyway. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for these strange kinds of chapters that talk about the strange early history of the church. Strange in good ways, strange in bad ways. Uh, help us to learn from them. Help us to be growing and, and even more confident in the gospel and the Christian life. Help us to be impressed with Christ, wanting to do whatever is necessary to express our love, the great love that's been expressed to us in Christ. Um, all for your honor and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. May the Lord bless you as you go.